Join me as we explore the realms of the witch, weird and wild, through storytelling, folklore, and walking the land. Welcome to Witch Country. Episode 3. Winter, Water and Witch Marks. Welcome, friends, to episode three of Witch Country. January is frosty and cold here in the British Isles, and I'm staying very much with the winter theme as I draw on a trip that I did at the midwinter solstice, seeking witch marks and water witches. First, just a small piece of news. Here at the end of January, I have now recorded the audiobook of Enchanted Journeys, which is my little book of meditations. And it was very exciting to be in a real studio. And the very lovely team at Chatterbox Audio were fantastic. And I'm excited about sharing the audiobook of Enchanted Journeys with you soon. But now let's dive into this month's wintry episode where I took a journey to Bradford-on-Avon in Wiltshire and then walked along the Kennet and Avon Canal. With trees stripped bare of leaves and foliage died back, winter is a season of crackling, frosted leaves, snow and storms dark, starry skies. Foxes might be seen, and deer I see often because they graze in the field opposite my house, very close to where I wait for my bus when I'm travelling into town. I watch them out of the corner of my eye, because if I look straight on, their heads shoot up and they freeze, staring back. Broadleaf trees are still dormant, but forest flowers are starting to emerge in patches of snowdrops. As the weather warms, catkins will form on alder and hazel. The sight of catkins and snowdrops are good indicators of the start of the new growing season. And if we're lucky, they might start peeping out in January and February. In winter, we carry the wild wood inside, for fires, light, warmth and cheer. With rich colours and scents of holly, pine and ivy. Winter lays over the northern world here in January. As the green of meadows and fields is sleeping under a blanket of snow, resting and preparing for a rebirth in spring. The tall firs in the dark forest wear sparkling dresses of white, silently guarding the soft, mossy floor beneath. Branches have lost their leaves, but the bare arms of trees still welcome your journey. Here, the forest sleeps, so walk gently through leaf piles and frosted paths. You may enjoy the silence, safe in the knowledge that the melody of birdsong will return.
It's Friday, and the shortest day of the year. The sun rose at 12 past 8am this morning, where I was already cradling my first coffee of the day in Bath to meet my friends and bid them a happy winter solstice and a Merry Christmas. I felt I should do something of note on winter solstice, but conversely didn't want anything too challenging in the way of travel so close to Christmas. So from Bath, I take the 10-minute train journey into Bradford-on-Avon, and then it's about a five-minute walk over to Tithe Barn. This barn is a 14th-century monastic stone barn. It's big and dark inside. One of the largest medieval barns in England is used to store the tithe, which is agricultural produce given by local people to support the church and was then stored in this tithe barn. The space is big and it's quite dark inside. Light filters in through these very narrow windows that remind me of those ones in castles that archers used to shoot their arrows out of. But the two largest of these windows at either end of the barn have a cross lower down on them so they look a little bit like inverted crosses but actually with the pale midwinter light shining through them what they really remind me of is swords and then I think of Excalibur glowing in the dark light at the end of these barns. And then there's also light streaming in from the large barn doors, of which there are several down the length of this big space. And it is here I find what I'm looking for, which are witch marks. And there are lots of them here. Daisy wheels, mainly. And I trace my finger over the spirograph-style pattern flowers. Witch marks were not made by witches, but for them. They are considered apotropaic, which is a word I find very hard to say. But they are ritual protection markings that were believed to ward off evil spirits or to trap them somehow. Witch marks can be found etched into stone, plaster, woodwork of walls, windows, doorways and chimneys of houses, churches and barns. Windows, doorways and chimneys were considered the most vulnerable because they're potential entrance points for demons, witches and evil spirits. These marks were created to provide protection to the building and those who lived or worked within them. The evil that was being turned away or captured may have been demons, witches, maleficia or any bad fortune like fire and to encapsulate all these things, a singular word, which, is a helpful shorthand. And people have long used the term witch, especially during periods of witch trials, to encapsulate or represent any misfortune that may befall you. Unfair, but true. Anything from a hangover to adultery, storm, sickness and seduction, both failed and successful attempts, has been blamed on witches at some point or another. But back to this modern term of witch marks. It's not considered particularly helpful by many scholars, but in the repelling of evil spirits, witch is kind of a catch-all kind of term. 
So these symbols are still probably best known today as witch marks. One of the most common types of witch marks in buildings is the daisy wheel, also known as a hexafoil. As the name suggests, the symbol takes the form of a six-petaled flower carved using a hand compass, resulting in a very geometrical style design and a pattern that always makes me think of that spirograph drawing toy that you may have had as a child. And those familiar with sacred geometry might recognise the similarity of this design with the flower of life. It was thought that if demonic spirits saw this line of the daisy wheel, they would follow it and become trapped. And the idea is that the evil will get into the wheel and those lines will become trapped there, going round and round the daisy wheel, and then unable to get out again, protecting the house or the symbol warding off the spirits completely. Daisy wheels can vary in size and complexity from a single hexafoil to a group of interlinked hexafoils. And it's a group of these daisy wheels that I'm here at Tithe Barn to see. I've been to this barn many times over the years as my family all live not far from Bradford on Avon. But I've never specifically looked for these daisy wheels and they're really recognisable as soon as I know what I'm looking for. And there's some very recognisable hexafoils by almost every big doorway at Tithe Barn. And they're scattered kind of seemingly randomly into little clusters overlapping and conjoining. The stone is cold and chalky under my fingertips as I trace the wheeled pattern, but I remain untrapped, which must be a good sign. The great majority of witch marks that we find today are usually from the kind of medieval to early modern period. This was a time when belief in witchcraft and the supernatural was pretty widespread and the use of magical symbols and ritual object was a pretty everyday part of life. And here, particularly in the West Country, every now and then when an old building is being renovated, little shoes or dolls or witch bottles and even the occasional mummified cat are found hidden away in chimneys. And I mentioned myself in Kitchen Witch, Food, Folklore and Fairy Tale, which is my fifth book that I published. Um, I said this. Every now and then, in old buildings and pubs around England, an old charm might be found consisting of an onion stuck with pins. One such discovery was made at Barley Mow in Rockwell Green in Somerset in the early 1900s. These charms are found in chimneys of homes as they offer a portal into the building. So, an odd onion as well can be found. But back to Tithe Barn. In front of the barn, there is a large Christmas tree bedecked in fairy lights. And then one of the smaller barns nearby has been transformed into a beautiful shop of gifts and decorations and garlands. Garlands of holly and ivy and bay and pine and fir. And this inspires me to create our tree tales this month, which is actually more plant tales. I hope you'll forgive me. So plant tales. 
holly, mistletoe and ivy. Three evergreens we see in nature, but perhaps that stand out a little more once the other trees are bare-branched. So at Christmas time, these plants really shine. Holly. My grandmother used to say that a sure way to keep a witch outside your home was to hang a garland of holly and bay outside the front door at Christmas. The witch would remain there, counting the holly berries, indefinitely, presumably, since witches only count up to four before starting again at one. Wiltshire Folklore by Kathleen Wiltshire, 1975. For many of us in the Western world, the sight of evergreen holly leaves and berries is linked with Christmas, Yule and winter. Hanging boughs of holly leaves and berries around the house bring colour to the dark days of Yule, also thought to keep evil spirits away and used as a charm against goblins and malevolent fairies. Conversely, people also brought holly into the house to allow fairies, perhaps the less malevolent ones, who wished to join them in the festivities, a place to shelter in the home, and thus avoid conflict between the fairies and human occupants. Mistletoe. In our pagan past in Europe, the mistletoe was perhaps considered a magical plant because it grows in an in-between place between earth and sky. It grows into a ball, allowing a symbolism of the sun to those who wish to see it as such. And the leaves are fresh and green all year round, making it a plant symbolic of immortality or life surviving in fallow times. Mistletoe can be found growing on hawthorn and ash, and more rarely on oak trees. In the UK, it seems particularly fond of cultivated apple trees. Mistletoe was considered magical to the ancient druids. Because the evergreen mistletoe bears its fruit in winter, it is an emblem of fertility and a symbol of rebirth. Hung over the doorway at Yule, Tied with red ribbon for harmony, it may represent a welcome to all who visit. In England, the tradition of kissing under mistletoe began to feature in written works around the 1700s. The mistletoe formed part of the kissing bough, and with each kiss, a berry had to be plucked from the bough for good luck. Ivy we have two native species of ivy here in the UK, common ivy and Atlantic ivy. In British folklore, ivy has been a plant of both positive and negative symbolism, and it has various associations in different traditions. It can be seen as a protective plant as it clings and climbs on building walls. It may be planted near homes to ward off evil spirits. In some traditions, carrying a piece of ivy was believed to bring good luck and prevent misfortune. Its evergreen nature means ivy may be a symbol of undying love and fidelity. So a priest may present a wreath of ivy to newly married couples. And today it is still a custom for bridal bouquets to contain a sprig of ivy. Within folk magic, ivy may be used for divination. 
at certain liminal times such as New Year's Eve or Twelfth Night or the solstices. People may write their names on ivy leaves before dropping them into bowls of water and leaving overnight. The following morning, one may inspect the leaves, and a green leaf meant the coming year would be happy, while if the leaf was black or curled up, it might mean that illness is coming or be a bad omen. So I've set off from Tithe Barn. It's very almost one o'clock. Behind the barn, I can join the Kennet and Avon Canal all the way back to Bath. It's midwinter, but it's not frosty. There's a cold wind as the tail end of a storm that has caused the windows of our house to scream and whistle is finally losing its edge. And I walk past canal boats who... All have their wood fires burning and there are plumes of wood smoke in the air. As I walk along the canal, a swan preens himself on the bank and browned ash keys hang from bare branches. There are a scant few moments when the sun breaks through and at one point it lights up an apple tree that's lost all of its leaves but is holding on to many golden apples and they're so bright they look like tennis balls attached to the tree. Wild clematis can be seen in white plumes amongst the trees as I walk, the occasional puff flying free on the wind. Wild clematis is also known to some as old man's beard. And it turns out, I found this out recently, the old man in question is apparently the devil. Inspired by the plant's intrusiveness and weed-like growing habits, it actually kills other plants on its way to take over the hedgerows. I'm a few months into my adventures now to seek the witch in earnest in these lands. And I'm enjoying today's opportunity to retread a much-loved path that I have not walked since pre-pandemic lockdowns. The first part of the route from Bradford-on-Avon to Avoncliffe is pretty busy. Lots of dog walkers and runners and friends chatting. And everything is quite pretty in that winter muted tones kind of way. Bear trees reach out over the water and a few of them are dressed in green moss and ivy whose leaves are dancing in the cold wind. The path is a bit muddier than I was expecting. I did consider wearing walking boots, but opted for trainers in the end. I like to see all the boat names of the narrow boats as I walk past. A distant cousin of mine lives on a houseboat in London called the Baba Yaga, so I'm on the lookout for witchy boat names. They run by almost like poetry of personal passions. Merlin and Elm. Narrow Escape, Barn Owl, Totoro, Slow Gin Palace, Midsummer Spirit, Wayward Angel, and Elf Wine, which I think means Elf Joy in Old Anglo-Saxon. There's a second boat called Merlin, so that's two wizards at least, Blackthorn, Eleftheria, 
which means freedom in Greek, and one called Celt, Mary Beth, Fern, Jesse, and Harry. There are beings that are said to inhabit the waters of Britain. These water witches are more often portrayed as wild creatures in wilder bodies of water, like rivers and stagnant wild pools, or the kind of mossy bog that might hold corpse lights and will-o'-the-wisps. Jenny Greenteeth is the river hag or water spirit that dwells in the waters of northern England, her long green hair resembling waterweed, and her long arms used to drag prey down with sharp teeth and claws. She, like other ill-reputed river demons, such as Shelley Coat, whose clattering coat of shells serves to warn his victims that he means to lure them to the river and drown them around the waters of northern England and Scotland. Other such water devils include Nellie Longarms, who dwells at the bottom of deep ponds, rivers and wells, and the Grindylo, who dwells in pools and marshes, with green scaly skin, sharp claws and teeth, and again, those long, wiry arms. All of these cautionary figures may well have been invoked by parents to warn their children from playing near water, as they wait at the surface of these waters, watching, waiting, ready for unsuspecting children to wander a little too close to the water's edge, where long arms may reach out. It took some time for me to find a specific folktale connected to canals and canal water, but I did find the Kids Grove Boggart, who apparently has been terrorising travellers for more than 200 years. The most common version of the legend told today is that the Boggart is the spirit of a woman who was murdered by boatmen as she travelled to London by canal barge through the Hare Castle Tunnel. This reminds me very much of the Slavic folklore of the Rusalka or Rusalki, who are wild water beings often portrayed as women and lurking in lakes and rivers and swamplands. They could also climb trees and you should always be wary of swimming in waters because the Rusalki could leap from the branches and drag you down into the water. In Polish versions of the story, the Rusalki are not born, but they are made. And a woman may become a Rusalki if she loses her life near water. She may take her life herself, perhaps, or it may be taken from her by others, suggesting her actions may well be of revenge. So we come to the end of my walk along the canal. My Fitbit is showing that I have now walked eight miles. It's half three and the moon has already risen and the clouds are turning a creamy golden, the colour of brandy cream and creme caramel and are reflected in the water. The festive lights of Barthampton village are already on and shining. I cross over the bridge to Barthampton, into the village and I catch my bus home. I get home just as the sun is setting at two minutes past four. And I am very ready for a hot bath 
and to climb into warm pyjamas, because such things are allowed when it gets dark so early. So it's been a merry midwinter for me, and I hope that you are all staying warm as we tip out from January, hopefully, into a bright and hopeful February and a bright and hopeful 2024. Thank you for joining me on the journey today. I hope as we part ways you feel a little enchanted and bewitched, inspired perhaps to walk a new path next time you head out into your own witch country. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do consider rating and reviewing. If you'd like to come and say hello, you can find me on Instagram at thisiswitchcountry. I'd love to hear your ideas, feedback and suggestions for further adventures into the wilds. Until next time, enjoy your walks in the wilds of the witch country.